I was in my college years and a relationship that was really important to me ended and I was devastated and I didn't know what to do about that. I went to some family members and they offered some platitudes, but they really didn't help. A few years later, after Christine and I had been married for several years, we had had our daughter Alicia and we're hoping to have some additional children and we're told by the doctor, you're not going to have any more children and I don't know how you had her. I remember the room spinning. My wife was devastated. I didn't know what to say or do. That moment I said to her, is there someone that you'd like to talk to? She mentioned someone that was a good friend who knew what our experience had been like. I remember we went and sat conference room in her office. Just cried. More recently, I was wrestling with God about some decisions that God had allowed in my life that I just didn't understand. just didn't make sense. And if I was really honest, I thought God made a mistake. I internally raged against God in my heart and soul for three days, feeling completely surrounded by darkness. I didn't know where to go or who to turn to. You face that darkness in your life. Maybe it's a phone call that you were hoping wouldn't come from the doctor telling you it's come or come back. It's a conversation with someone that you love, but they decided they don't love you anymore and they're done. Maybe it's watching a loved one waste away from an awful disease before their time. Or a boss saying, can you come into my office? We need to talk. And finding out that's your last day and it's time to move on. The truth is, for all of us, it doesn't take much for us to enter a time in our lives when just like yesterday, the sun is shining and it's a beautiful day and it's warm and comfortable and then quickly that cold, the the clouds cover, the clouds move in and the wind starts to build and the cold front pushes forward and the rain comes and darkness surrounds our soul. When this happens to you, where do you go? What do you do? Who do you run to? This morning we're going to look at an event in the life of David. A story that happened to him. A, a story about, not real about David, but about his arch enemy Saul. In which he faced his darkest hour. And we're going to look at where Saul went. And as we look at where Saul went, I don't think it matters where you are on your faith journey, what you've experienced, because regardless of if you're someone that maybe got invited to church this morning and it hasn't been a part of your 
life for a long time or you're just taking a step forward to follow Jesus and figuring out or you've been trying to follow Him and learn how, what that looks like for years, we all face these moments of darkness. We all face these windows when it, life doesn't make any sense. We all face these things when we just are doubled over and felt like someone hit us in the gut. And so I think the story this morning, there's a place for all of us in it. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn to 1 Samuel 28, 1 Samuel 28, um, where you can follow along on your phones or tablet, a wireless device. Our guys also have some Bibles. They have them to pass out. If you don't have one, we encourage you to grab one from them and the page numbers on the screen and follow along with us this morning. First Samuel 28. And as you're turning there, let me just tell you what's happening in the life of David in this story. David has been running for his life. He's been told he's going to become king one day, doesn't know when that's going to happen. But as he's told he's going to become king, he, as a hero often is, drafted into service by the king of the land to defeat Goliath, to go out and fight battles, and he's celebrated as a hero. But in being celebrated as a hero, he's, on his, on the, on his, he's running for his life from Saul. Because Saul has realized the hero status that David has received means Saul has gone down in the eyes of the people. So David's trying to find a place to hide, and he finds a very unlikely place, as we saw last week. He finds a place to hide in the middle of the Israelites' arch enemy, and that's the Philistines, in their territory, in their region. A city by the name of Ziklag. <clears throat> And so while David is hiding in this city, he goes to the southern part of the land of Israel and he goes out on these raids with his men. He's a warrior. He's a desert warrior is what David is with 600 men. And so they would go out on these raids and they would wipe out some of these enemies of the people of Israel down in the southern part of the land. And when he would come back and report to Achish, who was the king of the city that he was living near, he would say to him, no, I was over, he would say, what were you doing? He said, I was over in the, the Israelite area down in the desert regions. We were just fighting some battles down there. And basically he was playing the role of a double agent. And so as the story ended last week, we found ourselves with this question of how long will David be able to continue the charade? How long will he be able to continue as a double agent? How long can he make this work? And as we're wondering what, how, that, how long that's going to happen, look in 1 Samuel 28, verse 3. It says this, Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. It's kind of odd that this is, we're told this here. You say, why is it odd? Because if you would just look back a few pages to 1 Samuel 25, you would read the story of Samuel's death. So why does he bring it up again? Seems a little odd. Samuel was a prophet, and he spoke for God to the people. When the people wanted to know what God wanted them to do in those days, they would go to the prophet. goes on to say in the second half of verse 3, Saul had expelled the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Saul had banished witchcraft and every form of that from the land of Israel. He had actually followed the Old Testament law. You see, in the book of Deuteronomy, when God said, this is how you're supposed to live when you enter the land, 
This is what it says in Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 to 12. Let no one be found among you practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who's a medium or spiritist or who consults the dead. Anyone who does this is detestable to the Lord because of the same detestable practices of the nations before you. God said, this is the way everybody else lives, but you're to be a unique and distinct people. You're to be a people who choose to follow only one God, not every other God in the pantheon, just one God. And if you choose to follow this one, God, there's some ways I want to invite you to live that are for your good. And one of the ways for you to live is to set all of this aside. Today, we would call this practice channeling, using a medium to try to consult with the dead. You say, why was this banned? Why were they banned? Well, is it just because all the other nations did it? Well, I think the reason it was banned is because what this practice involved. You see, this practice was something that was practiced all throughout the ancient Near East, in which they would use chants and they would use imaginative, imitative arts to manipulate deities. You say, how would they manipulate deities? Well, what they would do is they would use these spirits to try to give them a sense of power, and that power would help them tell their gods what to do. It was an illusion. It was an illusion. That's what magic is. It's an illusion, right? If I was a magician, which I am not, I would try to show you a magic trick, and that purpose of that magic trick would give you a sense that I know how to do something that doesn't seem doable, right? You know, pull a dove out of my... Uh, nope, there's none in there. None in there. Pull a dove out of my pocket, you know? That's what a magician does. It's an illusion of control. And so what these individuals would do is they would connect to these spirits who they thought they were manipulating, controlling. What they did not know and understand is these spirits were real. These were spirits of Satan and his demons. That's who was manipulating, controlling these activities. And it would give them a sense of power over their deities. And God said, I don't want you to make an attempt to control and manipulate me because I want you to worship the one true God, not manipulate and seek to have an illusion of control over him. So the story begins in kind of a very odd way. The story begins with a reminder about Samuel's death and a statement about the spiritists and the mediums being kicked out of the land. Very odd way to begin a story. Because the story up to this point had been Saul chasing David. Saul chasing David. David hiding here. Saul comes here. David runs here. Saul's here. That's what we've been looking at for the last, in the time that we've been in 1 Samuel. That's where the story goes in verse 4. The Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem, while Saul gathered all of Israel and set up camp at Gilboa. They were preparing for a pretty big conflict. So what was the conflict about? Well, the conflict, as you're going to see on the map that's come up on the screen, is that the Philistines were in the southern part of the land. You can see the kingdom of Saul goes all right through the middle of the land of Israel. That's the kingdom of Saul. And what the Philistines were doing is they were trying to merge, they were trying to team up with the Canaanites and trying to cut the land of Israel in half. If they could cut them in half and cut off the northern parts of the, tri the northern tribes from access to the power and resources, then they would have the potential for them to expand their control of influence. This is how armies would fight in those days. You divide and what? Conquer, right? That's what they were doing. And so they're setting up for a battle there. And as they set up for this battle, in verse 5, Saul saw the Philistine army. It says he was afraid and terror filled his heart. Literally, terror gripped his heart, is what the text says. So why was Saul afraid? 
We don't really know why he was afraid. It could have been the size of the Philistine army. It could have been the fact that his best warrior, the guy that never lost, his ace, had just switched sides and was now on the Philistines' team. Maybe that's why he was afraid. Um, Maybe it was the absence of God in his life. But he knew he needed to turn to God, and so look in verse 5, that's what he does. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him. It says, by dreams or Urim or prophets. So he called out to God, but God wasn't there. And he lists the normal ways that God would communicate with people in those days. The first is by dreams. God would communicate through dreams. All throughout the Old Testament, you can read examples of God communicating to his people via dreams. Dreams are something that, especially for us in our Western culture, in our scientific, rational-based minds, we don't really know what to do with dreams. If you live in other parts of the world, dreams are a normal part of the way you live life. Because when, you're, when you are asleep and your subconscious is aware, there's things that you think about that guide and direct you. And we don't really know what to do with that. But I believe that God can still even do that in our lives today. But there was no dream. No dream telling him what to do. The second thing there, it says the, the Urim. The Urim. The priest would have in the pouch, in the, front of his, in the front of his garments, he would have a pouch, and in that pouch would be two rocks, a black rock and a white rock, and one was called the Urim, and the other was the Thummim. And when the priest would be asked to make a decision, the priest would reach in the pouch, pull that out, and it was like his magic eight ball. He was either the black one or the white one, yes or no. Well, there was a problem, because earlier in the story of Saul and David, Saul got upset because David went to one of the priests, Ahimelech, and do you remember what Saul did? He ordered Doeg, the Edomite, to kill 85 priests, just slaughter them. And so the priests were all gone. There were no priests for him to turn to. And the last one is the prophets. And Samuel was the prophet, and he was gone. And so Saul went to turn to God, and there was no place to turn. When his fear was the greatest, God was absent. When his fear was the greatest, God was absent. And so he decides to turn to some other source for God than the ones that God had provided. He looks for a replacement for God. Saul had been, in spite of Saul's uh, missteps, Saul was quite a remarkable leader because Saul had taken these this 12 tribes of the land of Israel that had moved into this land and he had taken them and formed them actually into a nation. The people of Israel with influence and with authority And now he's stuck. He doesn't know what to do. And so look in verse 7. Saul said to his attendants, Find me a woman who's a medium, so I may go and inquire of her. And they said, There is one in Endor. And you say, Wait a minute, John. I thought Saul got rid of them all. I thought he chased them all out of the land. Well, he did, but he didn't. If you read throughout the Old Testament, the story of the people of Israel is that God would say to them, get rid of all the idols, and they would get rid of all of the idols except for a few. And then God would say, get rid of all the places where you can offer offer children to sacrifice, and they would get rid of all of them except for a few. And the story of the people of Israel is over and over again, they would get rid of all of them but for a few. You think, why is that? Is that because the kings weren't good enough kings? No, there were some very godly kings, and even they couldn't clear everything out. 
I wonder, and this is just a speculation on my part, I wonder if it's because kings and people in authority can only legislate heart transformation so much. Let me say that again. Kings and people in authority can only force change so much if their hearts don't change. And the people of Israel, for centuries, their hearts didn't change. And God would say, if you turn back, if you turn back, if you turn back. And it was true here. And so he sends them out to find, find a medium, and they find one. And so Saul disguised himself in verse 8, putting on other clothes. And at night he and two men went to the woman. And he says, Consult a spirit for me and bring it up for me, the one that I name. Why the disguise? Well, remember, she wasn't supposed to be in the land. She wasn't supposed to be there. She was supposed to be gone. And um, she was still there. Maybe the, the clothing was simply um, part of the, the event happening at night. Usually don't hear of a seance in the middle of the daytime. They happen kind of at night or when it's dark. Maybe it was picturesque just to show that the king, the most powerful ruler of the land, had to hide when he went about his own kingdom. But Saul gives her an order. He says, consult, call up a spirit for me. And the woman is very suspicious. She says to him, you know that what Saul has done. She doesn't recognize Saul. He's cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for me to bring about my death? Saul said in verse 10, he swore to her, as surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished. She's very suspicious, but then Saul offers her safety. And then she says, whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel. Now, what would often happen in those days is the, the medium or the spiritist what they would do is they would see some kind of a cloud and then they would hear some kind of noises. And as they would see this cloud and hear these noises, they would interpret these things and say to the individual, this is what the spirit that you asked me to bring up is saying. You say, was it really that person? I don't believe that it actually was, but it was a spirit. And what was the medium doing? It was an illusion. They were trying to give the other individual a sense that this is what was taking place to exercise control and to make a living, of course. And so that's what she was anticipating. She was anticipating she would see some kind of a shadow, some kind of a spirit, and she would hear something, because this is how these things happened, and then she would interpret that and tell this man what he wanted to hear. That's what she's expecting will take place. But what happens? He says, she says to him, whom shall I bring up? And she says, bring up Samuel. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. I don't think she was expecting to see a real person because that's not what happened. It was usually some type of a spirit. I don't think that's what she was expecting. And when she saw that it was Saul and she realized who it was, Samuel, and she realized who it was, she said, Who would call Samuel except for the king Saul himself? And she realized what was taking place. The king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? She said, I see a ghostly figure. What does he look like? An old man wearing a robe. Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He knew right away. He knew right away. 
But then what goes on to happen is somewhat surprising, but somewhat not so surprising. Because Saul has an audience with his former mentor, Samuel, Samuel says, why have you disturbed me? Literally, why did you wake me up? Saul says, I'm in great distress. The Philistines are fighting against me. God has departed from me. No longer answers me, either by prophets or dreams. So I've called on you to tell me what to do. Now, there's a part of us when we hear this story that kind of has a shake in our heads thinking, Saul, what were you thinking? What, what were you thinking? Why did you even do this? It's as if Saul wanted to roll back the clock and say, now, forget about the fact that I went and sought a medium and we're not supposed to have them in the land. Forget about the fact that I killed 85 priests and I know I'm not supposed to do that. Forget about the fact that I've been chasing David all over the countryside and I should be protecting the nation from the Philistines and the Canaanites and everybody else. But can you help me? Can you help me? You know, it's a little bit like your kids who don't do their jobs, fight with their siblings, argue with you, and then say, oh, by the way, can I have some ice cream? And you're like, are, are you out of your mind? Do you not realize what just took place here? And you're like, no, no, of course not. You're not getting that. Why? You know, like flabbergasted about it. But that's literally what Saul's doing. He's saying, I know all this stuff has happened, but can I negotiate a little bit with you right here? And before we point the finger too harshly at Saul, or say, yeah, of course that's what my kids do, you know. When was the last time you negotiated with God? When was the last time something difficult, hard, or painful came into your life and you said, come on, God. I've walked with you, I've served you, I've given generously, I've sacrificed. Can't you cut me a little break on this? I doubt you use those words. It didn't take me too long to look at my own experience and see a time recently where I had done just that where I needed something that I didn't have and I didn't know how I was going to get it. And I found myself saying, God, can you just kind of cut me a break on this one? And if I'm really honest and say what I was thinking during that time, I thought about some of the things I had done for God believing that that would give me credibility with God to negotiate my way out of this. When was the last time you wanted a relationship just to get a little bit better than it was? When was the last time you needed some finances to get you out of a pinch? When was the last time you just wanted God to cut you a break on this health issue that you're struggling with? When was the last time? Saul was in a dark place. Saul was all alone and he had nowhere to turn. Look what Samuel says in verse 16. He says, Why do you consult me? 
Not that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy. The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands, given it to your neighbors, to David. And here's the reason in verse 18. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites. And we're not going to go back there in the story today, but if you want to go back and read in chapter 13, 14, and 15, you can go back and read the story where God said, I want you to do this. And Saul didn't choose to do that. Saul didn't obey God. You say, why didn't he obey God? Because what was more important to Saul was pleasing people, was people being happy with him, relationships being okay with him, than obeying God. For some of you, that's a real struggle. It's one of your core struggles. It's like dying to you if people in your life are not happy with you and everybody's not okay. You're always checking the temperature, the pulse. How's everybody doing? And that's what Saul did. He took a poll every time he made a decision. He said, if they're not going to be okay, I'm not going to do it. And God said, because of your failure to obey me in this issue and put the pleasing of people above the pleasing of God, you will face great consequences. Gets even worse in verse 19. It says, The Lord will deliver Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with them. Last thing you want to hear, today's your last day. Today's your last day. And the Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. For a guy who didn't have anywhere to turn in his darkest hour, he turned to a source that wasn't one that God had established one that God should, said should be removed. And he found out news that his life was going to come to an end. And the story comes to a very strange, bizarre twist. Because Saul is exhausted, he falls on the ground. It says there in the text that he hasn't eaten for a day and a night. That's no surprise with the stress he was under. Look in verse 21. It says, The woman came to Saul and saw that he was greatly shaken. And she said, Look, your servant has obeyed you. How ironic that the king of the land didn't obey the God of the heavens, but this woman obeyed Saul, knowing that if she did what he asked, he could have her removed from her home, maybe even lose her life. She did exactly what she was asked at great risk. She says there, I took my life into my hands and did what you told me. Now please listen to your servant and let me give you some food. And he refused. And the men said, yes, let her give you some food. And she had a fatted calf, butchered it at once, took some flour, kneaded it, baked bread, and set it before him and his men ate. What a picture of contrast that the writer paints for us. Saul, the king of the land, this woman who's not even supposed to be there, he doesn't obey the voice of God. She obeys the voice of the king. And in the end, she's the one serving him with what he needs the most. 
someone who he came to to try to get spiritual help met his physical need that he most needed at that point in time. What dominates this story, because you begin this story, it kind of has this creepy, eerie, Friday the 13th kind of feel to it. You know, mediums and spiritists and calling up the spirits and what's going to happen. And yet the end, this story ends with a tragic tale of a man who rejected the voice of God in his life and it cost him everything. It cost him everything. Saul had nowhere else to turn. In contrast to David who went to Samuel, who went to his good friend Jonathan, who went to the priest Ahimelech. Saul in his darkest hour pursues a witch in the magic of the day and attempt to negotiate away from God what he wanted. And I think for most of you, when you think about that dark hour and you think of calling out to God and crying out to God, and we're going to sing a song in just a few minutes to close our service that reminds us of that. But there are times, as we talked about last week, that we cry out to God and we look to Him as our rock, but we don't hear anything and we still don't know exactly what to do. Where do we go then? Where do we go then? Well, some of you solve it, try to solve it yourself. Some of you read more. You watch more YouTube videos, you know. You go online to find a solution, you know. And you're all about finding solutions. Maybe that's where you go. Maybe you don't go there. Maybe your, your response is a different one. Yours is what we would call an escape. Maybe for you, it's immersing yourself in another marathon of Netflix reruns, you know. Or maybe it's all day in front of ESPN. Or maybe it's in front of the computer at night when no one's watching and porn's on it. Or maybe it's gorging yourself with food. Or maybe it's some other addictive behavior and response. You see, we've got lots of options in front of us to solve things without God being in the mix. And that's exactly what Saul did. Say, well, John, what should Saul have done? What should he have done? I think one of the things that Saul was looking for is he's looking for someone to talk to about what was going on inside of him. If you think about who Saul... Saul couldn't find a priest to talk to. He couldn't find a prophet to talk to. And he actually ended up finding this woman who was a witch to try to get him to talk to a spirit. He's looking for someone to interact with him about this fear, this trauma, this thing that had happened in his life to give him some kind of guidance, some kind of direction in what was right in front of him. And so I want to ask you this question. When you face these dark nights, who do you go and talk to about it? Who do you go and talk to about it? Do you ask input from other people in your life about these situations? You say, John, I, I don't really want to ask people because if I ask people, then I get their opinions and then I have to do what they say. I'm not suggesting you have to do what they say. There might be a seed of truth and a whole bunch of stuff that is totally irrelevant. 
This past week, I, was, I had a, an individual that I know who asked me a question, and I asked a group of people that they know the same question. And so I had a chance to watch the responses kind of filter back to this individual. And some of the individuals like me said, I don't, my gut tells me that's not a good decision, but that's outside of my realm of authority, so you probably should ask somebody who knows a little bit more. And so a few of us just kind of gave a by-the-gut response, but go ask somebody who's an expert. One of the individuals who is an expert said, uh, this is the questions I would ask about this situation. There were individuals who were experts in another part with finance and said, this is what I would do in this situation. And so I had a chance to see a follow-up email that came the end of the week about this is what I've decided as a result of the feedback that's been given to me and this is the direction I'm going. I thought to myself, I wonder how often that happens. As I'm looking at Saul trying to find somebody to talk to about what's going on in his life. I wonder how many of us have a, have a circle of peers, a circle of trusted friends, a circle of people that, that know and love us, that when we're facing difficulties, when we're facing uncertainty, they say, what do you think about this? And they give us input. You know, I thought about this. I thought, what would happen if we did this more often? Because my perception, and this is just John's perception, no scientific data on this, but my perception is we don't do that very often. We just don't. Some of you maybe a little bit more. Others, hardly at all. I thought, what would happen if we did this a little bit more? If we had a circle of people, maybe it's our small group, maybe it's just people that know us, that we turn to in difficult, in challenging seasons of our lives. What do you think? You think we might make less bad decisions? I think so. Do you think that we might feel less alone in difficult times? think so. Do you think we might receive encouragement and support from others? I think so. So what do we have to lose? What do you have to lose? You know, as I think about my kids as they're entering their, as they're in their teen years and young adult years, I, I hope my kids don't try to make tough decisions all by themselves. I hope they turn to wise people and I hope I'm considered one of them. But if they've never seen me do that or heard me talk about doing that, guess what they're going to do? They're going to try to make those decisions on their own. And so to the moms and dads in this room, um, you play a big part in whether or not your, your student will choose to do this. You say, but they don't want to hear what I have to say. Well, join the club. That's just life as a parent at that season in life, you know. But there's a day you hope that they will. But I think they will only do that if they see you doing this now. And so as you think about these challenges that are in your life, Look at the question that's on the screen. What if God has designed relationships, put people in your life to walk with you, guide you during these dark and uncertain days? 
What would happen if you worried less, tried to solve the problems ourselves less, and turned to others more for help and support during these times? The reality is you have to decide where you're going to turn when you face that dark hour. I'm going to take a moment and just invite you to bow your heads. And as we close this morning, um, some of you are facing that. And I want to give you a moment to talk to God. And maybe you have to say, God, I'm not sure where to turn right now. And um, I don't want to try to do this on my own, but I don't know where to go. Maybe you have had, some of you have had people enter your lives in this season and you just want to say a big thank you to God for them because they have spared you big time. And maybe you have been trying to fix things on your own. Maybe you have been trying to escape. It's time to stop. It's time to walk away from that. Say, God, I... As hard as it is, I know I need people in my life. I know I need people that can just be there with me. And I don't want to end up like Saul. Going someplace that I will come to regret. Lord, you know each of our stories. You know where each one of us is right now. You know what's around the bend. What's coming next week. And God, we know that You are our rock as we're going to sing in just a moment. And we know that You will be there with us. But there are times we need someone in the flesh to sit and listen. To just be physically present. To sometimes give advice. And... Uh, God, help us to set our pride aside, set our ego aside, set our stubbornness aside and say, Lord, just help me to be open to um, people you bring into my life. Thank you, God, for those that you have. And we thank you in advance for those that you will. In your name we pray. Amen. One of the important takeaways I'm, I've gotten from this message is that God is steadfast. Even if there are times we feel alone, He has given us the resources and the foundations we need to walk this life of faith. And if we can kind, kind of always remember in the back of our mind that we aren't alone, He has, hasn't left us here by ourselves because He is our rock. We know that His foundation is strong and we need to just trust in Him. So I invite you to stand and sing with us as we worship 
our rock, our Savior, the foundation of our faith. 